This is The Guardian. Today, is the Israeli government deliberately making Gaza unlivable? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's been nearly 10 weeks since Hamas launched its brutal attack in Israel and since the Israeli government retaliated. In that time, the airstrikes on Gaza have barely stopped. More than 18,000 people have been killed, according to the Gazan Health Ministry. 1.9 million people have been displaced. And the space for them to find possible shelter, the place the Israeli Defence Force says is safest for them, has shrunk to an area the size of Heathrow Airport. There's nowhere safe in the whole of Gaza. The IDF has not declared any area out of bounds when it comes to carrying out strikes. Even the area along the coast that they have on and off declared to be a humanitarian zone. They have also said that Hamas have launched rocket strikes from there and so they will not rule out strikes on that area too. So they are now being careful not to declare anywhere a safe zone, rather referring to so-called humanitarian zones. Those 1.9 million people are struggling to get food, water, shelter and medical care in their own country. The Israeli government says it won't stop the bombing anytime soon. And even if it did, where would those people return to when more than a third of their homes have been destroyed? The United Nations rapporteur on the right to housing says that what's happening in Gaza is domicide. That's not classed as a crime against humanity, but should it be? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus... What is domicide? And is it happening in Gaza? Julian Borger, you're The Guardian's world affairs editor. The Israeli government agreed to a temporary pause in the fighting for six days until the end of November. And since then, we've reported on the conflict a couple of times, but The situation is just moving so quickly and it's proving so deadly. What is life like for people in Gaza right now? Life is desperate now for the people of Gaza. There is nowhere safe to go to. There is minimal shelter. There's huge overcrowding in the very south of Gaza where people have fled the fighting first from the north and then from Khan Yunus, the main city in the south. And there are these big tented camps springing up everywhere, not with proper tents, but with improvised shelters. There's no sanitation. 
and it's getting colder. Winter is beginning to set in and the nighttime temperatures are beginning to sink. And you have the very real threat now of major outbreaks of disease, particularly to children who make up half of Gaza's population. So there's a risk that we are really on a cliff edge now in terms of fatalities from this vast displaced population that isn't getting humanitarian aid and has nowhere else to go to. We're civilians. We've done nothing wrong. We're not fighting. We don't know how to feed our kids. We have no flour, nothing to feed them. Just an absolutely impossible situation. And more than a third of the homes have been destroyed in this conflict. How does the Israeli Defence Force choose where it bombs? The IDF themselves say they choose their targets according to intelligence that tells them where Hamas is hiding, and they blame Hamas for using hospitals, schools, residential buildings as human shields. We've heard from investigative reporting in the Israeli media that one of the categories, in fact, the main category for targeting is something the IDF is calling power targets. And what that means is they are hitting residential buildings. With the intention of causing mass civilian casualties so that the people of Gaza will exert so-called civil pressure on Hamas. The idea is make the civilian population suffer so much that they turn against Hamas because Hamas started this war. And in hitting these so-called power targets, people's homes, hospitals, the IDF is going to be having to make a calculation about the number of civilians who could possibly die. How do they weigh that up? And that is one of the big questions. According to the Americans, they do have a military lawyer in the room when targets are decided on. But what is not known is the calculation, what amount of so-called collateral damage, i.e. civilians, is justified for what kind of target. And of course, if this report, this investigative report by 972, this online magazine, is true, when it comes to power targets, there isn't necessarily a Hamas target at the core of it. We were sitting in our house in peace. What did we do, God? Let the world see what is happening to us. Okay, so according to this report, the IDF's main aim in hitting a so-called power target is to make the people living in those buildings hate Hamas. At the moment, do they warn people before they bomb their homes? What they've done is split the map of Gaza into over 600 districts, and then either by dropping leaflets or by putting out messages on mobile phones, tell people who are in particular districts to get out of the way of these IDF planned military operations. Obviously, there are a lot of things that go wrong there. A lot of people do not have mobile connections anymore. 
And also, a lot of these people have moved multiple times. In the past, they've been told to move south, and then the south was bombed, they were told to go to Khan Yunus, and Yunus has been bombed. They've been told to go further south to Rafa on the border with Egypt, and Rafa has been bombed. So there is a sense among the people of Gaza, there is nowhere safe to go to. And in essence, they're right. It's been said too many times to count that nowhere in Gaza is safe, but that's being constantly repeated because it's true. Julian, some international lawyers are looking at this situation and saying that this is domicide. What is that? Domicide is the deliberate targeting of buildings, of people's homes. If you destroy people's homes, even if they leave the area of combat, they will have nowhere to come back to. And that feeds into the question of, what are the intentions behind these military operations? Is it to drive the population out for good, create an area that is uninhabitable? Also, by depriving people of shelter, you make them much more vulnerable to the cold and to disease. And so when you're looking at the conduct of military operations, the destruction of the places where people live is a really important part of assessing how those military operations are being carried out in terms of the law of war. And as things stand, domicide is not categorized as a crime against humanity. And there is an argument that it should be one of the crimes against humanity. To what extent is it possible to say that that's what's happening right now in Gaza, that the Israeli government is not only going after Hamas fighters, but also intentionally trying to make Gaza uninhabitable. I think there's a very strong argument to be made that that at least is the consequence of what the IDF is doing. That's beyond question that large areas of Gaza are now uninhabitable and it will take them an awful lot of rebuilding before they're habitable again. So then you get to the question of intention. I think if this report is right and that these so-called power targets are being attacked not because there is some military target there but in order to create civilian casualties to put political pressure on Hamas deliberately, then you could be looking at potential war crimes. How is Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, justifying the tactics that they're using at the moment? Netanyahu has portrayed this campaign, Swords of Iron it's called, as a campaign to destroy the military and political strength of Hamas. Our hero troops... They have one supreme main goal, to completely defeat the murderous enemy and to guarantee our existence in this country. We've always said, never again. Until Hamas is completely destroyed, there could be many repetitions of the 7th of October attacks and the massacre of civilians. That is the argument that both Israel and the US have made against the calls for a ceasefire. 
In terms of making the place uninhabitable, though, how does the Israeli government respond to that? How does it justify the number of civilian deaths there have been and the fact that so many residential buildings have been destroyed? The Israeli government is putting the onus for the civilian casualties on Hamas, saying Hamas is using civilians as human shields. It is their cynicism that has led to the high civilian death toll. They say that the civilian population has only been told to move out of areas of combat and not forced sort of long term out of Gaza. But there is a suspicion, especially among the neighboring Arab states, that the long term aim is to force Palestinians out of Gaza altogether. And there is some evidence that some members of Netanyahu's cabinet see that as the end goal of this operation, that the Gazans should be taken either by Egypt or by other neighboring countries or by the international community. The government as a whole denies that is the intention. Julian, Domicide, as we've been talking about, is a way of making an area unlivable. And obviously, destroying people's homes would be one way of doing that, but also destroying facilities that they can use. There are currently 11 functioning hospitals left in Gaza. In terms of thinking about people's access to healthcare in Gaza right now, The World Health Organization has put out a statement this week saying that it's seen evidence that hospital staff in Gaza, paramedics, have been abused by IDF soldiers. Tell me about that. What they're talking about is an incident on Saturday when there was a joint emergency mission by the WHO and by the Palestinian Red Crescent to get to a hospital in the north, Al-Awali, to take some medication up there and to evacuate some badly wounded and very sick patients. And what happened, according to WHO, is that at a checkpoint going up through Gaza, the soldiers took out the workers from the Palestinian Red Crescent and held them there, at least one of them by gunpoint. And then on the way back, when they had some very sick people in the ambulance, the process was repeated and one Palestinian Red Crescent worker was held, apparently stripped, held at gunpoint. And in the end, the WHO decided that for the good of the patients in the ambulance, they had to leave without him. He was later released, but said that he had been stripped, humiliated and beaten, and then made to walk south from the checkpoint without shoes or clothes with his hands tied behind his back. The reason that there were patients in that vehicle is because, as we said, many of the hospitals are not functioning at the moment. And so where it is at all possible in this situation, people are being moved to functioning hospitals. Can you just give me a sense of what the healthcare situation is like across Gaza at the moment? To what extent are people able to get the healthcare that they need? Even the 11 out of the 33 hospitals that are still functioning are only partially functioning. I mean, it's functioning 
not in a way that would be recognizable in normal terms. It just means there are some people, health workers and medics there, but there aren't necessary medications, not necessarily anesthetics. There is now really the potential tidal wave of disease because of the unsanitary conditions everywhere, the overcrowding and the cold. So they're worried about jaundice, they're worried about cholera, and they're worried about pneumonia that could, in the coming weeks, really turn out to be the big killers. Julian, there have been accusations that the rules of war are being broken in this conflict. For instance, the International Committee of the Red Cross has raised concerns about some of the footage that's come out of Gaza in the past week. These pictures that I'm sure many people listening to this will have seen of men rounded up by the IDF, stripped to their underwear with their hands tied behind their backs, blindfolded and kneeling on the ground. Very disturbing images. Has the IDF confirmed that those people are Hamas members? Israeli reporting is quoting military officials as saying only a small part of those men we saw rounded up and stripped were deemed to be Hamas operatives and detained and the rest were released. So it was really a question of the wholesale detention of men found in these different areas where these roundups were carried out and all of them were stripped supposedly as a precaution against concealed weapons and suicide vests and so on. But it's clear that the military leadership have come to the conclusion that inviting Israeli photographers to come and take pictures of all these near-naked men was an own goal because it gave evidence of treatment of prisoners that is expressly forbidden under the Geneva Convention. Quite astounding to think that those were officially sanctioned photos. Yeah, they were really striking. And the idea that anyone in the military chain of command thought it was a good idea as a way of getting at Hamas morale and hadn't thought about the exposure it gave to the IDF in terms of their treatment of prisoners, their conduct of war under Geneva Conventions is really quite astounding. And so some of those men have been released, those who weren't confirmed as being Hamas supporters. What's happened to those who are said to be part of Hamas? There are extensive detention camps around Gaza. We know this from people who've been in them and subsequently released. So our understanding is these people are being held and they are being intensively questioned for real-time intelligence that will help IDF in the pursuit of the Hamas leadership. Coming up, world leaders are increasingly putting pressure on the Israeli government to change its tactics. Will they be able to have any influence? (laughs) 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Julian... The UN General Assembly had a non-binding vote on Tuesday for a ceasefire in Israel. The result of the vote is as follows. 153 in favour, 10 against, 23 abstentions. Draft Resolution A-ES-10-L27 has been adopted. But the Israeli government is refusing. What do they plan to do next? The IDF brass, the generals, are making it clear that they would like to see this campaign carried on through December and January to complete the mission to destroy Hamas as a military and political force, and secondly, to find and rescue the hostages. There is some question over whether they will have that long to complete those missions. There is pressure from the US. The US would rather this was wrapped up by the end of this month. Uh, and there's a tension there. The US is, of course, Israel's biggest backer. And Joe Biden hadn't until this point been explicitly condemning the Israeli government for the way it's carrying out this war. So it's significant for him to make any criticism And it's clear from the UN General Assembly vote that world leaders elsewhere are becoming more incensed by what's going on. I should add that the UK abstained from the vote. How significant is it 
that the vast majority of countries in that vote want a ceasefire? How much influence can they actually have on what happens next? I think this exerts an indirect influence. It's non-binding. It was predictable because we'd already had a test run in the Security Council and the US stood alone. And it's important, of course, politically, because the US has made much of similar votes about the Ukraine war and highlighted the extent to which Russia has been isolated over that. So now that that situation has been inverted, it is obviously an embarrassment. It's obviously felt in Washington as damaging to Washington's influence when it comes to other issues. A new candid message from President Biden on Israel. At a fundraiser in Washington just a short while ago, Biden told donors that Israel is losing support around the world and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu needs to change his hardline government. I think this is the strongest remark so far. Obviously, he has been on something of a journey of rising unease about the way this war is being conducted. He did say before, in passing, that the bombing in the north had been indiscriminate. So he has used that word before, but here it was clearer, it was direct, and it applied to the campaign as a whole. So that will be a message that will be heard by the Israeli government in Tel Aviv. How has Hamas's position developed as this conflict has gone on, as 1.9 million people have been displaced and close to 20,000 killed? Are Hamas saying that they want a ceasefire? And what would they be willing to do to make that happen? Yeah, Hamas would like the campaign to stop now, ideally, obviously, but their leadership is still, most of it has survived. The estimates of how much of their forces have been killed vary, but at most a third. The reason the humanitarian ceasefire broke down at the end of November, beginning of December, was that they failed to produce a new list of women hostages that were supposed to be released. There are still reportedly negotiations going on involving the Qataris, but even the Qataris say that the window is narrowing. The question now is whether Hamas will be ready to release male prisoners, which they've been reluctant to do up to now, treating them as military prisoners. And we're several months into this now, and there are men in there who are elderly, who are sick, who are not part of the IDF. And, you know, it's just worth remembering that there are many, many people still there in Gaza being held hostage. Including 50 women. And there's a question of why Hamas was not willing to put those women on the list. US and Israeli officials have suggested that they have been treated so badly and the accounts they have to give would be so damaging to Hamas. That is why Hamas has not let them go. That is at the moment an allegation and we will not know until those women are released. And if Hamas freed the remaining hostages, the Israeli government's still not going to agree to a permanent ceasefire, is it? Well, any ceasefire that Hamas negotiated involving hostages would be very temporary. And the Israelis have made clear they're not interested in a permanent ceasefire until they have achieved their aims to their satisfaction that they've destroyed Hamas. You can imagine that would involve inflicting more damage 
to the infrastructure in Khan Yunis, where there are, according to the Israelis, you know, more tunnel networks and so on. We're hearing from Israeli military officials that this is going to be carried out in phases. They are going to inflict the maximum damage they can on Hamas and then pull back to the fringes of Gaza, create a buffer zone around the edge of Gaza, and then continue to carry out military operations into the heart of Gaza when they believe they've spot Hamas activity. So from what we heard, this is really just one phase of the operation. And there will be a second phase that could last for many more months. You know, what is left very vague at the end of that is what vision they have for what happens to Gaza after they believe they have eradicated Hamas. And the situation in the meantime, for the millions of people who live in Gaza and who are running out of food, clean water, medicine, anywhere to live, what's going to happen to them in the coming weeks? They are just hanging on and really facing now the very real threat of mass disease, of starvation, of exposure, hypothermia, pneumonia. The Israelis are saying that people should go to Rafah on the Egyptian border and this Bedouin community on the coast called Al-Mawasi. But in Al-Mawasi, there is really nothing. There is no infrastructure. In Rafa, it's the one place in Gaza where humanitarian relief can reach. There are about 100 trucks a day coming over the border, but it falls well, well short of what is needed by a desperate population. And you have to wonder how many people are going to die in the next three weeks. Quite likely there's a cliff edge coming. The rate of civilian casualties we've seen up to now could be dwarfed by what is to come. Julian, thank you very much for keeping us updated. Thank you. That was Julian Borger, The Guardian's World Affairs Editor. You can read his reporting and that of all our correspondents in Israel and Palestine at theguardian.com. Now, if you want to understand the final agreement that was made at the COP28 climate conference in Dubai this week, our sister podcast, Science Weekly, has done an episode on it that's out today. Just search Science Weekly wherever you found this podcast. And while you're here, I'd love you to get involved with the Guardian and Observer charity appeal. It's something we do every year to support brilliant causes across the UK. And last time we raised £1.5 million thanks to you, our listeners and readers who were so generous. This time we're going to be splitting the donations between three charities that help refugees and asylum seekers. Refugee Council, Refugees at Home and NACOM. I know money's tight for lots of people at the moment. But if there's something you can give, just go to theguardian.com forward slash donate. Thank you. I'm Hannah Moore, and this episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo, and the executive producer was Hummer Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow.
This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.